Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Jonardin Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Hide and Seek, the Upanishads. What is the most central philosophical activity? For sure, it's not what is nowadays the most common philosophical activity, namely writing a student essay for a philosophy class late at night after lengthy procrastination. Nor is it publishing books and articles, which professional philosophers tend to do after considerably more procrastination than they'd let their students get away with. It isn't even listening to philosophy podcasts, much though it pains us to admit it. No, the core practice of philosophy is dialogue a calm and frank exchange of ideas, arguments, examples, and counterexamples. To be a philosopher is to be willing to test your view against rival views, to subject your theories to refutation, and meet such refutation with well-considered defense, or, indeed, by changing your mind. In ancient philosophical literature, it is, of course, Plato who leaps to mind as the greatest exponent of the philosophical dialogue, but a second place of honor should be reserved for the Upanishads. The texts traditionally labeled as Upanishads react to the ideas and sometimes specific passages of the Vedas. There are four revelatory Vedic texts, also called Samitas, which form a substantial body of text. The oldest one, the Rig Veda, has ten books, each of which contains on average about 100 hymns. This and the other Samhitas are dense and difficult works, which call out for exegesis and exposition, and that is what they got in the form of a multi-layered tradition of commentary. The Upanishads are only one layer of that system. Sometimes, by the way, the words Veda or Vedic are used to refer to all of this literature collectively, the earliest revelatory texts plus the layers of commentary. A given Upanishad will be associated with a specific Samhita which inspired it, but without providing close line-by-line commentary. Instead, the Upanishads are heterogeneous collections that mix scenes of dialogue with anecdotes, parables, poetic metaphors, and advice. The earliest date from around or before the 6th century BC, but more were written for many centuries afterwards. The two oldest, the Great Forest and Chandogya Upanishads, were both composed before the time of the Buddha. We say composed rather than written because, like the Samhitas, the Upanishads were transmitted orally over many generations. Numerous hints of this are preserved in the written versions, for instance the use of repetition to aid memorization, and even turns of phrase that make it clear that a certain gesture is intended to go along with the recitation. The Upanishads are symbolic, evocative, and inspirational, plastic in meaning, and just as open to interpretation as the canonical scriptures of other religious traditions. What they offer the philosopher is not so much close conceptual analysis or system building as the setting down of broad themes. The most fundamental of these themes is the uncovering of hidden connections between things. Indeed, the very term Upanishad means a hidden connection or possibly a secret teaching. That, and the broader context of a tradition of revelatory religious text, may lead us to expect the Upanishads simply to declaim their esoteric wisdom for our benefit, if only we can understand it ourselves. But more often, claims of knowledge are put into the mouths of various characters who are often challenged by others. We saw an example last time, 
in a passage where a king rejected a series of attempts to explain the concept of Brahman. Here and elsewhere, students or would-be teachers are said to fall silent because they find themselves unable to answer a question, or to improve upon the answers others are giving. The listener or reader is thus invited to consider the basis and reliability of the claims being made. At the same time, we get a vivid impression of the ancient social context. We see our protagonists in courtly settings, with the elite scholars of the day strutting their stuff for rich benefactors and striving against one another to claim admiration and more material rewards, like all those cows we mentioned in the last episode. This is well illustrated by the third section of the Great Forest Upanishad, which dramatizes not so much a debate as a competition. We are at the court of a king named Janaka, who plans to lavish gifts upon a group of priests who will carry out a sacrifice. When he announces his intention to discover who among them is most learned, a Brahmin named Yajnyalvadkya steps forward. He is questioned by a series of rivals and reduces each of them to silence. He bests them over the function of religious rituals, but also when it comes to such philosophical issues as the means by which we grasp the world around us, and that core concern of the Upanishads, Atman, or the self. Interestingly, a woman is also allowed to join the debate, one of several female characters who appear in the Upanishads and take full part in the debate. Her name is Gargi Vakaknavi. She has two goes at questioning Yajnalvakya, first when she pursues him along a cosmological regress. People say that the world is woven upon or supported by water, but what supports water? Air, comes the reply. But then, what supports air? and so on, via the sun and the stars and the realm of the gods, until Yajnalvakya tells her to stop asking questions lest her head shatter apart. But Gargi is apparently impressed. Shortly thereafter, she declares that if Yajnalvakya can answer a further difficult line of questioning, he should be deemed invincible in debate. Her second inquiry is similar to the first, and elicits another regress of explanatory cosmic principles but this time the buck is stopped. He satisfies Gargi by telling her that all things are woven upon space, and space upon that which can never perish. She pronounces him the victor, and before long the other Brahmins agree, or at least give up trying to get the better of him. This dialogical setting for philosophy is going to be a long-running feature of Indian thought. It will especially characterize the texts written in the Age of the Sutra, which turn on mutual refutation by members of the various schools. We're not going to see many interlocutors in that period who are willing to fall silent. But in that later context, philosophers are themselves engaged directly in intellectual disputes. The Upanishads are more like the Platonic dialogues. They depict named individuals having discussions with one another. One result is that the same questions don't always get the same answers, even in a single Upanishad, never mind in different works of the genre. Nonetheless, there are a range of philosophical themes that appear throughout Upanishadic thought. Most central among them is the aforementioned idea that there are unseen connections between things, which will yield themselves up to those who seek what is hidden. We see this with the beginning of the Great Forest Upanishad, mentioned in the last episode, where the parts of a sacrificial horse are compared to aspects of the universe. The idea here is that the world as a whole shares the same arrangement as the sacrificial object. This is, in fact, supposed to explain the very efficacy of sacrificial rites. 
By means of ritual, human beings can effect a reordering and even a repair of the world. The parts of the cosmos stand in a one-to-one -one relation with the objects that are in the ritual domain. The dawn is the head of the horse, the sky is its back, and so on. A similar claim is made about the human body, which is presented as a sort of cosmological map. The same Upanishad contains an excellent example, in which speech is compared to fire, sight to the sun, breath to the wind, mind to the moon, and so on. Sometimes a physical theory seems to underlie the alignment of microcosm and macrocosm. Shortly after the passage on the sacrificial horse, the great forest Upanishad describes a conflict between demons and gods. We are told how the demons introduced evil into the speech, smell, sight, hearing, and minds of the gods, but they are unable to corrupt the breath of the mouth, which is said to be the most fundamental aspect or essence of the body. Breath also plays a role in the natural world. Wind is simply breath that is freed from death. Finally, and most importantly, breath is also the foundation of speech. This provides a connection to the ritualistic concerns of the Vedas. The chapter concludes by pointing out that a ritual prayer is itself a form of speech. The chanting of the priest is held up by breath, as is the whole world. As one reads further, one finds the Upanishad concluding with some rather frank advice on sexual practices. You'd think this would be a rather jarring shift, but true to form there are subtle connections to what has gone before. The text posits an intimate relation between the male seed and breath. In fact, Pregnancy can supposedly be prevented if the man exhales into his partner's mouth and then inhales it again, thus extracting the power of seed and breath that was first given up into the woman. Our advice would be that couples do not try this at home. The Great Forest Upanishad, from which we've been quoting, is the oldest of the Upanishads. It sets the tone for those that would follow, using the familiar as a map or template to understand what is unfamiliar and unknown. As another of the oldest texts, the Chandogya Upanishad, puts it, You must surely have asked about that rule of substitution by which one hears what has not been heard before, thinks of what has not been thought of before, and perceives what has not been perceived before. What we are learning to perceive from such substitutions is an underlying grid of correspondences, which match bodily parts and vital functions to the primary elements and celestial bodies. The ultimate ground for the correspondences is called Brahman. It is a unifying cosmic principle whose role is described in the Kena Upanishad from which we'll now quote at some length. By whom impelled, by whom compelled, does the mind soar forth? By whom enjoined does the breath march on as the first? By whom is this speech impelled with which people speak? And who is the god that joins the sight and hearing? That which is the hearing behind hearing, the thinking behind thinking, the speech behind speech, the sight behind sight. It is also the breathing behind breathing. Freed completely from these, the wise become immortal when they depart from this world. What one cannot see with one's sight, by which one sees the sight itself, learn that that alone is Brahman, and not what they here venerate. Notice again how these quotations use the same taxonomy we've seen earlier, featuring breath, speech, hearing, sight, and thought. But notice too that Brahman is more than just one element in the net of correspondences. It is something more fundamental, a breathing behind breathing, unseen because it is that by which one sees. 
We can learn something about both human and cosmos by seeing the links between them, but Brahman remains more elusive. It is inexpressible because it is that in virtue of which we speak, and unthinkable because it is that in virtue of which we think. This may sound like a dead end, an ancient Indian version of negative theology. Would you really hand over a thousand cows for this? But the Upanishads make one final dramatic move. They identify Brahman with the self or soul, the Atman. To quote the Chandogya Upanishad, This self of mine that lies deep within my heart, it contains all actions, all desires, all smells, and all tastes. It has captured this whole world. It is Brahman. On departing from here after death, I will become that. Perhaps then we should understand the Upanishads to teach that the order of things, the division of things into classifications, is itself in a correspondence with the order of our minds. If self and world are organized along fundamentally analogous lines, then self-control and self-understanding become methods for controlling and understanding the world. This idea is supported by a remark in the Kena Upanishad, We have taught you the hidden connection relating to the Brahman itself. Of this hidden connection, austerity, self-control, and rights are the foundation, the Vedas are all the limbs, and truth is the abode. Or, to quote from a modern scholar of the Upanishads, Joel Brereton, Each Upanishadic teaching creates an integrative vision, a view of the whole, which draws together the separate elements of the world and of human experience and compresses them into a single form. Of course, this ancient Indian literature is not unique in holding out the prospect of a unified explanation of the world and of our experience. The peculiarly Upanishadic twist is that the single reality behind the multiple aspects of the world is also the reality of the individual self or subject. The Upanishads seem to tell us that there is no hope of forming a unified conception of the world while leaving out the self that a conception of the nature of the self is the key to a conception of the nature of the world. Much later, Shamkara Karya, a philosopher who lived around 800 AD and invented the system of Advaita Vedanta, interpreted the idea as a denial of the reality of difference. That's a rather technical and metaphysical, and also contentious, way to capture the idea the Upanishads express with metaphors, with the connections they draw between animal or human and world, and with its cyclical cosmology. Take, for instance, the Upanishadic idea that the world emerges from a single unity, only to resolve eventually back into it. The Mundaka Upanishad offers a powerful image to express this. As a spider spins out threads, then draws them into itself, so from the imperishable all things here spring. The modern Scottish philosopher David Hume was apparently aware of this verse and asked how the Indian philosopher could compare God with anything so contemptible as a spider. But it is poetry, not philosophy, that sustains the metaphor. It expresses the grand integrative vision in which the whole world is spun out and drawn back into a single imperishable thing. The same point is made when God is compared to a magician or to a potter fashioning the eternal atoms into new forms. The path to wisdom charted here looks like a short trip. We want to understand the world, then realize that the world conforms to the self and vice versa. The rest should be easy. We need only understand ourselves in order to understand all things, and what lies closer to hand than our own selves? 
The catch is that the self is elusive, for the very reason that Brahman was found to be elusive. As Gargi knew, the wisest are those who persevere in the search for that which is most fundamental, that upon which all things are woven. One of the other sages who appears in that debate is named Udalaka. He reappears in the Chandogya Upanishad, where he is depicted promising his son, Shvetakitu, the knowledge that will account for everything, the knowledge of the totality. Udalaka tells his son to fetch the fruit of a banyan tree, to cut it open and find the seed, and then to cut open the seed. Shvetakitu finds nothing inside, but Udalaka tells him that within the seed is the finest essence on account of which the banyan tree has grown. It is, he adds, the essence that constitutes the self of this whole world. That is the truth. That is the self. A single essence, an essence within an essence, unifies, integrates, and explains the whole, but this essence is also invisible. So, seeing the correspondence and perhaps even identity between self and world is only the first step of a longer journey, for the self is not the sort of thing that just offers itself up for our understanding. Another recurrent theme of the Upanishads is that the self has five sheaths, namely food, breath, mind, intellect, and bliss. Thus, the Taitiriya Upanishad declares, Now a man here is formed from the essence of food. Different from and lying within this man formed from the essence of food is the self consisting of life-breath. Different from and lying within this self consisting of breath is the self consisting of mind. Different from and lying within this self consisting of mind is the self consisting of intellect. Different from and lying within this self consisting of intellect is the self consisting of bliss, which suffuses this other self completely. So, breath is not fundamental after all, even if directing our attention towards it is a crucial part of coming to understand the underlying essence of the self. Our task as self-knowers is to get past superficial appearances to progressively deeper notions of the person. You are what you eat. No, you are your breath. Or, more fundamentally still, your mind, and so on. Notice that the procedure is the same as the one applied to the cosmos as a whole in the dialogue between Gargi and Yajnalvakya. When he reduced the world to water, water to air, air to the stars, and the stars to the divine, or when we identify the self with food, then breath, then mind, we are not just following an indefinite regress. And contrary to what it may seem, we are making progress. We are reaching a more profound level of understanding with each step. It's an encouraging thought, which comes along with an equally discouraging warning. Brahman or the self may be so fundamental that it cannot be understood. Since it is that which underlies and explains other things, it cannot be understood in light of anything else. So, does the journey towards grasping the self ever reach its destination? To find out, you'll have to persevere and join us as we discuss a quest for the self, undertaken in the Upanishads by the god Indra, next time here on the History of Philosophy in India.